The following program is presented by the Far East Broadcasting Company because stories of people living out the gospel with their lives inspire all of us. FEBC, taking Christ to the world through radio and new media. Learn more at febctoday.org. There's Messianic Jewish congregations now all over the world. There's hundreds in the United States. They're all over Russia now, all over Europe, South America, South Africa. They're everywhere because Jewish people are coming to faith. Our guest now is Jonathan Bernis, a Jewish believer in Jesus who's been a leader in a Messianic Jewish ministry for more than 30 years. Welcome to First Person. I'm Wayne Shepherd. As we get started, I'd like to welcome a number of new radio stations and listeners who are joining us. This weekly conversation is about people who have committed their lives to Christ and serve Him faithfully in a unique way. Although you may be a new listener, we've been on the air for a number of years and have archived our past interviews online at firstpersoninterview.com. There you can listen to any past program or even download as many interviews as you like by easily using our smartphone app. Look for First Person Interview in your app store, and there's no charge for the app or downloading content. Let's hear from this week's guest now. Jonathan Bernis has started Messianic congregations in the U.S. and Russia. He's also an author and TV host, but his own story of reconciling his Jewish roots with Christianity in the person of Christ is very compelling. As we began, I started with a very basic question, what is a Messianic believer? That is the first question I'm usually asked, Wayne. I have two answers about when this whole thing started. One is 2,000 years ago with the first believers, who were all Jews who never converted from their faith. They understood that this was the promised Messiah, mm-hmm. promised in their own scriptures. So Messianic Jews are Jews who have come to believe that Jesus, we call him by his Hebrew name, Yeshua, is our promised Messiah, but we we don't believe that we've abandoned the faith of our fathers. We believe that we've discovered the Messiah that was promised from the beginning of Scripture, from Genesis chapter 3 on, and so we retain some degree of, of identity as Jews. And that's varying. To, uh, we're, we're a pretty vast community now, and so there's a big spectrum of observance, but we were clear that we are not Christians in the sense that we haven't converted to another religion, but found our promised Messiah. So okay. we're we're two thousand years old on the on the one hand, but it's a it, the, the the rebirth of this is from the charismatic renewal or the Jesus movement, mm-hmm. where hundreds of Jewish people came to faith and then understood my identity that I was raised with is important. There's always been a remnant of Jews who believed in Jesus throughout history, but through the 18th and 19th centuries, especially the 19th century, Jewish believers identified themselves as Hebrew Christians. Uh, And Messianic Judaism is from the early 70s, which emphasizes the Jewish identity as opposed to being Christians. Again, not that we're not Christians, but we understand what this means to... You have kind of a dual identity in a sense, don't you? We, We do, but... For, for for Christians, we understand that Christ within, that we are followers of Jesus, but for Jew, Christianity means convert, yeah. turncoat, <laughs> them, mm-hmm. the ones that have persecuted us. So we're really trying yeah. to recast an understanding of what it means to believe in Jesus as a Jew. Very interesting. Very interesting. Okay. Tell me your story. 
How, how, how was it that Jesus became your Lord? It was a pilgrimage that began as I look back and piece it all together in high school with a group called Young Life. I went to, uh, I'm just going to be honest with you, uh, I went to Young Life because there was some really cute girls that I wanted to get to know better. <laughs> I have a feeling that's a Wait, testimony of a lot of young men. You, yeah. But yeah, <laughs> that, and people say that's my testimony too. So I heard about Jesus, uh, and I thought this is a really compelling figure, this God who can walk on water, heal the sick, raise the dead. When my God, the God of Israel, was a distant God who had done miracles in the exodus out of Egypt and calling Abraham, but now was distant and unreachable. So that intrigued me. But whenever I heard the gospel, I kind of gave the straight arm. I'm Jewish, and immediately people apologized to me. But before you go any further, what did being Jewish mean to you? Were you uh, Orthodox? No, I was a Reformed Jew, but uh, Jewish identity was important. I, I was compelled. I was to go to Hebrew school during, from the time I was nine years of age, I went to synagogue. I had my bar mitzvah at age 13, where the, as a, as a teenager, young teenager, you, you go up to the front and mm-hmm. read from the Torah and there's years of preparation yeah. for that. It's a rite of passage. Right of passage, yeah. exactly. So Jewish identity was about survival and the fact that I was born Jewish, I would die Jewish but not about a relationship with God. That's why you can be an atheist and still be a good Jew Mm -hmm. or an agnostic or even a practicing homosexual. But the the, the line that they draw uh, where you can't cross is Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, you're no longer Jewish. This Mm -hmm. is why we're trying to recast who who Jesus really is and what it means for Jew to believe in him. But I got involved in that group and then I moved on to college and like the other kids of my era, we got involved in, I got involved in drugs mm. and Grateful Dead and all kinds of crazy things. I was in Hare Krishna for a while. And a girlfriend who was deeply involved in drugs, and I found out later was suicidal, but I saw the changes in her life that were so negative and I lost contact with her. And then she reappeared on the campus one day and she looked great. And I said, Susie, what happened to you? Well, she had been born again, ah. and then she made me her project. She had her new Christian friends at her Bible study praying for me by name, her new church members praying for me by name. And she used to talk to me, on the. she used to call me on the phone, and I, I didn't want to talk to her, but I'd find myself talking to her about what happens after you die and why we're here on this earth. And I eventually went to a Bible study with her, and I don't even remember the study uh, very well. It was a, It's a fog now. It was 38 years ago. But I remember being confronted at the end of the study with the wage of sin is death and the gift, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. And I prayed a prayer just to appease the, the, this big attack on this gospel assault. But when I woke up the next day, Wayne, I had this urge to read the Bible. First time ever. Isn't that remarkable? It was remarkable. Now, there's a misconception that Christians have that Jews know the Bible better than they do. Mm-hmm. Not you, true. You didn't know it. Never read it other than my bar mitzvah portion, you know. This <laughs> yeah, three, that three which you verses, had to do, right? <laughs> three verses or a, half a chapter. Yeah. So I finally found a Bible, which is another story we have to, I have to tell you someday, trying to find a Bible with the New Testament for a drug-dealing Jew was really a challenge. <laughs> but someone had given me a Bible years earlier. I recovered that Bible and began to read the book of Matthew, and it changed my life. Beginning with the lineage, by the way, which... What prompts you to start with Matthew? Can I ask that? 
You don't know. It had. I don't know. I just. I just had this urge to read the New Testament, and that was the first. So you book. started at the beginning. I started at the beginning, okay. and uh, I don't know why I didn't go back and start it at Genesis, but I wanted to see what the Christians had to say, because I was taught that this book had nothing to do with Judaism, and in fact, uh, was were very anti-Semitic. Right. But when I started and read the lineage, the son of David, the son of Abraham, it completely uprooted my worldview because. I had been taught that these were the great patriarchs of Judaism. What was Abraham and David doing in the Christian's Bible? And I thought there must be two Abrahams, two Davids, parallel universe. I didn't, my worldview didn't allow me to, to, un, to comprehend this. And then I read on and discovered that Jesus was Jewish, that the first disciples were all Jews. You must have blown your mind. Blown my <laughs> mind. And what was even more mind-blowing, Wing, was when I went back to my own Jewish scriptures and read things in Isaiah and Jeremiah. Oh, there you go. And oh, yeah. Daniel, written hundreds of years before <laughs> Jesus was ever born. And I saw Jesus clearly in these prophecies. And it so changed my life that I ended up, well, with a sense that the Lord was calling me into full-time ministry, dropping out of business, School of Business Administration at the University of Buffalo after th- my third year, and spending three more years studying Judaism and early Christianity, and then went into full-time ministry. Your family must have thought you were crazy. Crazy, and, and a lot of anger. Was and there? pain. Yeah, I, I had a lot of rejection from my parents when I told them that their drug-using, drug-dealing son was now a believer in Jesus. They Did they think it was out. a phase of some kind? They thought it was a fad, and the counselor that they had me go see at the Jewish family services said, we hope it's a fad. But I don't want to meet with him again. He's obnoxious. Because I was giving her homework assignments. Yeah. I said, we're going to meet again next week, and I want you to read Isaiah 53, and we'll discuss it. She finally was fed up with me, and I went to the rabbi. The rabbi loaded me up with guilt that my grandfather would be rolling over in his grave if he knew this. And I, re- I did go through a crisis early on of guilt that maybe I was betraying my people. And I went on a short fast. Thankfully, it was couple, only a couple days. And the Lord spoke to me, gave me a scripture verse, and I opened it, and it said, you were running well. Who hinders you from the truth? Hmm. And I'm tearing up as I'm talking it. That, that, that absolutely took me over the point of no return. And from then on, if it was, it was as, if God is for me, who can be against me? And that was 38, 37 years ago. It must have been someone come along that kept you on track, somebody you looked up to. There was a couple of people. Uh, the man who led me to the Lord, uh, who taught that Bible study, was my disciple for four years. He's my spiritual father, and he really walked me through this. And he very wise, he realized that he could not answer all my questions or, or identify with what Did I was Did he understand through. your Jewishness? Yes, he, he understood that he could not deal with some of the things I was going through, so he took me to see another Jewish believer, a, well, uh, a very grounded Jewish believer who was a local pastor, and and that pastor helped me through as well uh, in understanding that this I hadn't betrayed my forefathers. I hadn't betrayed my parents, my grandfather. Uh, I had found the promised Messiah, and it's been an incredible journey. We'll learn more about the life and ministry of Jonathan Bernice coming up today right here on First Person. I'm so grateful for the grace I receive while listening to FBBC all day long. I cried listening to God's message multiple times. 
just one of millions of grateful people who listens to the Far East Broadcasting Company in her own language. You can sign up for a free online daily devotional from FEBC, telling more listener stories, while at the same time it encourages you from God's Word. Receive this online devotional without obligation when you visit firstpersoninterview.com. My guest is President and CEO of Jewish Voice Ministries International. We've heard your story. I know there's a lot more to it. I wish we had all the time in the world to really dig deep on your story, I have Jonathan. stories. You'll have, yeah, we'll have I, to come back. I bet you do. But I want to get to calling. I want to know, now that you're a Messianic believer in Christ, a Messianic Jew, what has God called you to do with your life? I know you're an author. You've written lots of books. Is this the most recent one? That's the most recent one. Unlocking the Prophetic Mysteries of Israel. Yeah, but uh, we'll, we'll put links to your ministry on our webpage. But tell me about your calling. Well, I knew almost immediately after my life began to change, within a few months of my salvation, that God was calling me, one, into full-time ministry, but two, to reach my own people with, with the gospel. That was a clear call. That was a clear call. I knew I was called to my own people. I, I, just, I just knew it because of the misconceptions that I had. And I, it was so clear to me when the Lord opened up my eyes and I began to ask why, why did our people miss this? Why for 2000 years have they rejected Jesus? And I just knew. So I went to school to prepare uh, for this call uh, and was going on to seminary when the Lord stopped me and said, no, I want you to actually start a congregation. So uh, I completed de- degrees in, in Judaism and early Christianity. And then the Lord led me back to my hometown, which <laughs> a prophet is, is with honor yeah. except in his hometown. Yeah, good move. <laughs> uh, my mother actually said, go anywhere but here. She lived in <laughs> Rochester, New York still. But I, I went back to Rochester and I started a Messianic Jewish congregation. And uh, we had six people when I started. I was going to say, was that hard to get going? It, it was hard to get going. It took a, really a number of years to take off, but we, we began to grow. And a local church was instrumental in, in helping us. And I was on the staff of that local church. So they caught the vision with they you. They caught a vision yeah. with me. And, and we had meetings Friday night in their youth chapel. And then the Lord opened up an opportunity in 1988 to buy a facility. Uh, we, it was a Catholic convent. We bought the convent, and we, um, we renovated it. And well, you're covering all the bases here, aren't you? Every, soup to, to every denomination, yes, and every, every group. So uh, for nine years, I led that congregation, and we grew to a really nice size. We were a couple hundred. And then uh, the Lord called me to move to Russia, and that was the result of traveling back and forth to Russia uh, what was the time frame here? It, this it, we're talking about 1990 when so I began just to about Glasnost time, yeah, right. And then in 1991, 92, uh, I traveled back and forth to Russia a couple times a year and distributed gospel materials. I uh, met a group of messianics and began to bring over food. I remember once filling 18 suitcases hmm. with food and supplies, yeah. and the miracle of uh, the. Uh, airline waving them all through yeah. without cost. I was involved in Russian ministry at that time as well, and it was a an ex, just an exuberant time of openness. It was incredible where, where people were listening. They weren't yeah. jaded anymore. They were. They were. You know, communism was behind them. They wanted to hear what the West had to say. There was this vacuum, this spiritual yeah. vacuum, and there, it was an amazing period of time. I, I really think it was a revival. 
And I saw that there were a lot of evangelists and missionaries coming to Russia, but the Jewish people weren't being reached. And it takes a special message to reach Jewish people. Mm -hmm. And the Lord gave me that message. Uh, I met Jewish people everywhere I went in the former Soviet Union, and they had a hunger to identify with Israel and their culture. They, They were robbed of their culture. So I began to organize cultural festivals of Jewish music and dance. How did that go over? I didn't know how it would go over, but it was a huge hit. We ended up renting for the first one a concert hall that sat 4,000 people in St. Petersburg, standing room only. We had to turn hundreds of people away. We filled it for three nights and then did two more nights of discipleship meetings for the almost 4,000 Jewish people that came up in the altar calls. 4,000. And I was expecting 40. (laughs) Four I would have been happy with. We had 4,000. And I realized God's doing something really unique here. And uh, later in that, later in 1993, I moved to Russia. And for the next six years, we held festivals all over the former Soviet Union. By 1995, we were filling football stadiums, Wayne, with Jewish people, knowing they were coming to hear the gospel. What a great thing. So I saw tens of thousands of Jewish people respond to altar calls. I'm careful not to say they were born again. I don't know. But I can tell you they stood or came forward in altar calls. They heard Jewish the gospel. People heard and responded to the gospel. It was an incredible period of time. Uh, in, so I lived in St. Petersburg from 93 to 97, moved back to build the infrastructure and traveled back and forth to do these festivals. And then in 1998, I agreed to take over the interim leadership of Jewish Voice Broadcasts, a ministry that was started 50 years ago as a radio ministry and then a television ministry. And uh, I got more involved in, in 1999, assumed the leadership of Jewish Voice. And we've been doing a television program for the last uh, 20 years or since yeah. I've come on. Well, I know there's a lot to it. You just mentioned television. What else are you doing through this ministry today? What, what, what is the outworking to what you do? Well, our big thrust has shifted into work in Africa with lost tribe communities. Africa. Africa. Now, well, you're jumping all this, over the globe here. We are, and I get the same response from other people. Why Africa? And the answer is because there are communities in Africa, like in Ethiopia, that have an oral tradition of being part of the yeah. people of Israel. I have Beta heard that, Israel, yes, yes. Uh, the the uh, Lemba community in Zimbabwe, in the bush of Zimbabwe, here's this group that claims to be descendants of the priesthood of of Aaron, Levites, and DNA testing has now confirmed that they have the same DNA type as the Cohens and the Levites living in Israel. I had not heard that part of the story. It's an amazing thing, and we've seen tremendous openness to the gospel in these communities. So what do you do? How do you reach them? Well, here's another one for you. The Bene Menashe, the children of Menashe, one of the Lost Ten Tribes living in Manipur, Mizram, India. Well, Israel has now accepted their claim, and there's 14,000 that have moved to Israel serving in the army now. It's unbelievable. So medical care, dental care, eye care, earning the right to share the gospel. So tell me about some of those programs. We started to do this in 1999, and in 2005, I I was up all night in Ethiopia. Uh, The Lord was dealing with me about making a, a, a much deeper commitment to the Ethiopian Jews that had remained, because they were a number of them were airlifted out by Israel, and the ones that were left behind were just 
left behind and living in squalor, and many had died of disease and malnutrition. And we have grown, God, the Lord has grown us significantly so that now we're treating over 50,000 a year. Now, most of them aren't Jewish, but we go to Jewish communities that are impoverished, and that gets us there, and then all their neighbors come. And we have, uh, we've ministered to over a million now just in the last in the last nine That's years. That's incredible. So through humanitarian efforts, it earns you the right to share the gospel. I've, I've lived with this adage for the last 20 years that people don't care what you know until they know that you yep. care. It's actually good. 30 years almost now. Mm-hmm. And it's true. When you help them, they want to know why. And then it gives us the opportunity to share the gospel. Yeah. And we've had incredible results. You know, there's over, over 120 Messianic Jewish congregations just in Ethiopia and Zimbabwe that have been planted through these uh, medical clinics. And there's tens of thousands now that are responding. Jews coming to faith in Christ. I I believe it's a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. So as this unfolds, what do you see in the future happening? I I think the end of the story is already written. Romans 11, (laughs) which is really my... Romans 9, 10, and 11 are, are really the foundation for what God's called me to. And Paul says that there's a blindness that's happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, and then all Israel shall be saved. And then following that, Christ returns to Zion. So I see that as the progression. I understand that chronologically, and I'm seeing the blindness coming off of the eyes of the Jewish people. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Wayne, when I became a believer in 1980, there were Jewish believers, but there weren't a lot of them. And I'll tell you, I have seen incredible growth in these last 38 years. There's Messianic Jewish congregations now all over the world. There's hundreds in the United States. They're all over Russia now, all over Europe, South America, South Africa, Australia. They're everywhere because Jewish people are coming to faith. Jonathan, is there a verse of scripture that just you identify with it so strongly. What What is that verse? There's so many, but the one that I have been really focused on, and I, I put a lot of time into to this verse, these verses in the book, is that the rejection, Romans 11, verses 11 through 15, that their rejection brought you salvation. What's going to happen when they come back? They being the Jewish people. He says it will bring life from the dead. Study that one. Every one of you that's listening, that's a powerful statement. Indeed, it is. That's Jonathan Bernis, today's guest here on First Person. He is the leader of Jewish Voice Ministries International. If you'd like to learn more about Jonathan and his gospel ministry, please visit us online at firstpersoninterview.com. And if you joined us late, you can hear the entire interview there at firstpersoninterview.com or download it using our smartphone app. Coming up in the weeks ahead, we have interviews planned with Dave Zanotti, who views himself as a missionary in the field of public policy bringing biblical thinking to the public square. And then two weeks from now, apologist and author Sean McDowell, son of Josh McDowell, joins us to talk about what he's doing to help the children of Awana get grounded in the faith. You'll find the complete schedule of upcoming programs at firstpersoninterview.com. Also look for us at facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview where you can leave comments. My thanks to the Far East Broadcasting Company for making this program possible. Take a few moments to learn more about FEBC's broadcast ministry in many hard-to-reach countries by visiting firstpersoninterview.com and clicking on the banner for FEBC. The listener stories will inspire you as the gospel is proclaimed. Now, with thanks to my friend and producer Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard. 
Thanks for listening to First Person. 